Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks everything's been going downhill since FIFA's Creed 2. My name is Cameron MacDonald, and I spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Kippy Sport. Above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And last episode, we looked at a number of managerial firings with Dean Smith and Daniel Farke both relieved of their duties at Aston Villa and Norwich, respectively. Since then, both clubs have been quick on the approach for replacements, with Villa appointing Steven Gerrard as manager and Norwich expected to announce Dean Smith in the coming days. We've also had Eddie Howe unveiled as the first face of the new Newcastle. That's, uh, I think that's going to catch on as a thing, new Newcastle. Um, and uh, some interesting developments in the international games. So let's jump in with Eddie Howe. Uh, yeah, Eddie Howe indeed, and uh, lots to talk about. It's been, I think this is just a symptom of the, the international break, isn't it? A lot of hirings and firings as teams sort of look to use this sort of week and a half break to allow new managers to sort of get get to grips with squads, especially if you're someone like one of these clubs, like a Norwich or a Villa or a Newcastle, that don't yeah, have... Sure that much of the squad away on international duty. They'll have a few players here and there, but it's quite a good chance for, while a lot of the top teams are sort of sending players away in in stasis, if you're Norwich manager or Newcastle manager, you're getting some time to get to grips with the players and and, and figure out what's going on. So it makes sense that there's been so much turnover, Um, but it does feel like we've been spending a lot of time both here on the podcast and indeed just in general as football fans, thinking about managers and managers leaving and managers arriving. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, um, as you say, it's always going to be a natural break where, you know, people are looking to hit the reset button and it's clearly the perfect time because, you know, they've each manager has had a little bit of time into the season. You know, they've had three or four months um, since the start of the season to try and see if they can get things firing. And for a lot of these managers, they, they didn't quite manage it. Um, as we've talked about, you know, definitely at least one of those two was was premature. Could could Steve Bruce still be in his job? I think maybe, but you know, obviously you've got to understand that there's a lot of ambition circulating around St James Park at the moment. So they probably just want to get cracking with the new project as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think Steve Bruce was sort of given his thousandth game as sort of like a a mark of respect, and I think you know as soon as the um, the new owners came in, they knew they wanted a different manager, but sort of wanted to pay tribute to a manager who's been around the block and been around for a long time, um, but definitely had someone in mind. It wasn't necessarily Eddie Howe. They've been linked with a lot of different people. Unai Emery was um, notably at the front of their mind um, for a long time, um, and that sort of ended up not working out. And now they've gone for Eddie Howe. And there's a lot of interesting things to delve in with Eddie Howe, because Opinions mixed on Eddie Howe as a manager. There are those who look at his stellar record with Bournemouth, taking them up, obviously, two promotions, and then staying in the Premier League for a long, long time. as very, very impressive. Um, and then the football they play was very good as well. But there are others who look at, you know, he's a manager who's only ever managed one other club than Bournemouth, and that was Burnley for one year, and then that didn't go massively well. So people are sort of wondering, is he a bit of a, you know, one-trick pony? Or is it actually the case that, you know, we've heard Eddie Howe's name tossed around in, in, you know, linked to vacancies at clubs like Arsenal and Spurs. A lot of people say of Eddie Howe that he's done so well at Bournemouth that he deserves a step up to, to another bigger job. And this Newcastle job, because of the backing they have and because of the size of the club in terms of, you know, popularity and fan base managed in the correct way, not just by Eddie Howe, but also by the people behind Newcastle, could end up being a big job in two, three, four years time. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it, the jury's definitely still out about Eddie Howe. I 
personally thought that he was a really good manager at Bournemouth. But then, as you say, there are a lot of questions that come out of that. Is it just that it was the perfect job for him? Did he hit his ceiling? Um, personally, I think that we still have... I think there are more sides to Eddie Howe to see. I think he's got more in the tank than than just you know a a lower table Premier League side in him. I think he could have maybe taken a Spurs job and done well with it. I think he probably will manage this rebuild quite well. It could also be you know that he's a bit of an interim manager that you know he, he's there to come in and manage the transition from the old Newcastle to the new Newcastle. Um, there it is again. Uh, so yeah, still a lot of questions up in the air, but I think he's the right man for the job. It's tough not to make the comparison, fairly or otherwise, between Eddie Howe and Mark Hughes when he took over at Manchester City. Um, obviously, he took over just a couple of months before the the deal was finally over the line, but it was another similar. You know, the the shadow of the new owners was there, and and. Mark Hughes was there for, I want to say, a season and a half and and did well there and then obviously passed on the reins to Roberto Mancini, who eventually did end up winning the league with Manchester City. And he did, as you sort of described there, very much take up that role of sort of like a custodian manager who sort of like tidied up the bits that weren't quite very good under Manchester City, brought in a lot of the players that ended up being integral to that team, like, for example, steady pro Gareth Barry, um, and, you know, managed to be that mid-step between Manchester City not being a very good club to Manchester City being a really, really good club. And they didn't want to go straight in with a Mancini because there was a lot of, you know, bits to sweep under the rug and things to tidy up before welcoming a top, top manager. And and maybe this will be the case with Eddie Howe. A lot of people have looked at this appointment, I would say myself included, by sort of thinking that it's the kind of appointment you would have imagined Newcastle making if there had been no takeover. If they had just sacked Steve Bruce when they had anyway you would expect them to go for a manager of this sort of profile. Um, not to say that Eddie Howe isn't, you know, potentially a very good manager, but I think Newcastle are a, is an exciting job. It's a big job in football. So uh, you, you wouldn't, put, put it this way, you wouldn't have been surprised if Eddie Howe had gotten this job and there'd been no takeover. You wouldn't be going, wow, that's a bit below Eddie Howe's station. And to that end, yeah, I'm true. almost kind of like, okay, so this is a very big job. They've given it to Eddie Howe. I wonder, do they view him as someone who is the man to fulfil this project or in that Hughes role of sort of tidying up the loose ends, making sure they stay up, or at least if they go down, giving them a good go of getting back up because he does have experience of that with Bournemouth. And then once the ship has been steadied a little bit and it's not just losing water at a, at a rate of gallons, um, then they can bring in a, whoever it is, top, top level manager to, to take them to the next level like City did. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, I guess. I mean, I think um, the fact that they seem to be shopping around a little bit before settling on Eddie Howe suggests that maybe they would have been happy to bring in someone top talent, couldn't recruit them yet, so thought maybe we need a bit more of a stepping stone manager like we've talked about. Um, ironically, I kind of feel like um, if if Steve Bruce was to have a similar profile of manager, it would in my mind be someone like Mark Hughes. So, you know, could could he have done that job of, you know, helping Newcastle into the next phase? I get why you want change just to represent the fact that there is change. Um, but just a, an interesting little point. Well, I suppose to represent change, but also the fact that Newcastle haven't won a game yet this season. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, it's not just the club that wants change because they've got new managers in, sorry, new owners in. It's because they literally really do just need change. Um, I think they've been unfortunate to not get more points than they have. Um, But yeah, that's neither here nor there. They've not been doing well so far. 
I think there's a lot of interesting signs in terms of, I mean, optics are something that's been really important and interesting about the Newcastle takeover. Obviously, we've seen like all the Newcastle fans dressing in dish dashes and all the sort of conversations about Saudi Arabia. But in terms of the optics for Newcastle fans, I think there's a lot to like about Newcastle's new owners. There's a lot of things that they've done that have been incredibly savvy. Obviously, the first thing that you would think about is the huge amount of wealth behind them, and that sort of led to these theorised teams of, you know, Haaland and Mbappe. But there's been a lot of smart little initiatives that have also gone around. So it's been reported that there's already been £30 million put into the club just devoted to sort of organisational and infrastructural things. Um, One thing that I thought was really, really impressive was they dedicated... Uh, I think it was a weekend and, and a lot of money to getting a crane in to clean the Gallowgate end, which is the away end at St. James's Park. And it was often sort of like bemoaned by local fans uh, and also to people who lived in the area that it was really filthy. It had like dusty windows. It was like a real, real eyesore. And I think little things like that, even if they maybe sort of seem to be superficial on the, on the surface, can kind of represent a sort of duty of care that's being brought. And I think now the hiring of Eddie Howe the presentation of the owners so far is that they're stewards of the club that are sort of the antithesis of Mike Ashley. Loads and loads of resources, but really considered in the application of these resources. And I think this was the big thing that we were worried about with the takeover of Newcastle and something that could still happen. We all were worried that they could try and do almost sort of like a PSG and just buy loads of players, get a superstar manager and have all these amazing little bits, but not fitting quite well together. Eddie Howe, and I would say to the same degree Unai Emery, because Unai Emery is more accomplished, but he's not a super superstar manager. Looking at those kind of appointments seems quite sensible, even if it is just for a first stage. Um, And I think that bodes well for the ownership, although that is is a very, very early stage to be saying that. Yeah, there was there was one thing similar to that that I thought, you know, that's just a smart little move. Uh, they removed the the cost of um, people picking up tickets when they forget them, like um, season ticket holders, for example. Normally, what used to happen is that you'd pay, you have to pay like a, a couple of quid to get your tickets printed out the stadium if you left them at home. And mm. I saw an account of a fan that ha- that had forgotten their tickets and then had gone to the club to get them printed and they just handed them for free and had gone, oh, like, do I need to pay for them? And they just kind of said, like, we don't do that anymore. So, like, it's really, yeah, it seems savvy. And I agree with you that the profile of the manager of Eddie Howe is young, English, vibrant, exciting stuff to offer. And for those things alone, as a profile of manager, I think he's, yeah, I think he's the right thing to be bringing, especially if, I guess you're you're looking to kind of build slowly and build long term, which again is probably what you want to be presenting to Newcastle fans who are some of the, the most passionate fans in England. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, in much the same way that the owners are sort of presenting themselves as antithetical to Mike Ashley, Eddie Howe is somewhat of an antithesis to Steve Bruce, where Bruce is sort of a bit of an old head. He's very experienced. He's a much-traveled manager, managed several different clubs. Eddie Howe is a lot younger, and he's one of the youngest managers around, and also has only managed one club besides Bournemouth, which which is Burnley. And you can look at that lack of an experience as a negative, of course, um, is one way to look at it. But the other way you can look at it is people who've been in the game for less long, and he's not an inexperienced manager, but people who haven't been in the game as long as someone like Steve Bruce are less likely to be set in their ways. They're more likely to be adaptable. As you mentioned there, we haven't really seen much of Eddie Howe outside of Bournemouth. So it could be very possible that he comes in with a completely new style for a completely new team. And you can see how the fit works because a huge portion of Eddie Howe's experience 
is as a manager succeeding with a low investment Bournemouth team, keeping them in the Premier League for far longer than they really should have been, in my opinion. Whereas someone like Steve Bruce had a couple of his teams relegated, his Birmingham and his, his whole city sides, and a couple of his teams have sacked him before he got the chance to relegate them, Sunderland and, and Newcastle. So I can see how sort of being like the, the bizarro Steve Bruce, which is, you know, if one has not given them a win all season, that means that Eddie Howe will only win from now on. <laughs> That's how it works, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, what's the what's so. this space? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, Eddie Howe must be licking his lips in anticipation. Um, he must be so thrilled to have this opportunity. So it, it's exciting to see what he's going to do with it. Um, I think that, obviously, you know, he, he kind of chose to leave the club as Bournemouth got relegated. And I think definitely, in my mind at least, his intention there was that he did not want to manage another championship side. He felt that he was worth more than that. So for this opportunity to come along for him is is huge. Um, and I guess it's all down to him to see whether or not he can make a real thing of it and stay as Newcastle ramp up or if you know he's going to get left behind at some point. Yeah, and I thought he sort of came out and talked about he gave a sort of a speech when he was an unveiled manager and I thought the the things he said were really smart. He sort of came out and sort of dumped cold water on the idea that there'd be a real squad overhaul, which even though there may be, I think was great because he sort of addressed quite directly. He was like, look, there's been a lot of talk that we're going to be jettisoning, jettisoning these players and getting in a whole new squad, but that's just not true. I trust in these players. I believe in these players and we're going to use them to, to I believe we can, you know, stave off the drop. Um, and that's just great great words to hear for players as we talked about previously like that does have a bit of a negative effect when all of the fans are going oh fantastic we don't have to watch Sean Longstaff for another week because eventually we're going to get in Marco Verratti whereas he sort of has had the opposite effect and you you would have to have had to settle a lot of the squad there um, and it's not surprising that he sort of talked about his trust in the squad because a lot of the members of that team are players he's trusted in before he's got you know several Bournemouth stalwarts like Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser and Matt Ritchie playing there yeah, I mean, I guess he's got to say that at earliest until uh, January, right? Yeah, it might not even be true. They might do a big overhaul, but the fact that he immediately came in and went, look, those talks are nonsense, like, we should stop saying that because all it's going to do is dishearten the squad. It's like just a really good first note to, to kick things off with. Yeah, I mean, if you're a player at Newcastle and maybe even, you know, someone who's a little better um, than, um, than that, you know, pretty much any player is probably worrying that they're not going to be you know, a part of the, the squad going forwards. So, yeah, obviously the first step will be to kind of bring stability with you. Um, and, yeah, he's saying the right things, so we'll just see if he, he does the right things. It's definitely a really interesting partnership because, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, Eddie Howe and Newcastle are a perfect pair. They're both... One's a manager and one's a club that are both sort of looking on to kick to the looking to kick on to the next level. Eddie Howe has always been, you know, he's a Premiership manager, but he's been one of those that manages one of the teams towards the bottom end of the table, and maybe some years they'll finish top half, but not really that level. You know how some managers get trapped in that sort of zone of being sort of like relegation saviors or whatever and here he could kick on and be a big club manager if he does really well with Newcastle and they end up you know if they finish let's say I don't know eighth next season they're not going to sack him off the back of that and he could continue to improve with loads of money so he's a good fit for them in that in that respect and Newcastle of course are a club that are also trying to kick on from being a club that 
obviously are big in terms of fan base and, and global recognition, but at the moment are not one of the better clubs in the Premier League. And they're also looking to kick on and go back to a, an area where they are one of the top teams. So I think it's quite a good fit for two, two sort of a team and a manager. They're in the same place. They have the same objective personally as well as in tandem. Um, and it could, could be a match made in heaven. It could well be, yeah, and, and in the same vein, I guess, you know, that all the players will be thinking, I have an opportunity here to cement myself in, in the new look side, and I want to try and push off, kick on from maybe a slightly bad run of form or a bad season so far. So it's definitely going to be, you know, blank slates and a world of opportunity for, for any player, even if your name is Ryan Fraser, maybe even especially so. Well, yeah, you would imagine especially so, but definitely want to keep an eye. I'm very interested to see how that team uh, plays under Eddie Howe. Uh, looking at our next managerial appointment, this is, and I know it hasn't been officially announced yet, but I, it seems like it's going to be announced either like tomorrow or like, I, I think probably first thing Monday morning would make sense, or certainly early next week. Norwich appointing Dean Smith. Is that the quickest turnover from a manager losing their job to getting a job again in the Premier League? I mean, it really was the first thought that I had when I saw that. I just thought to myself, you know, is is he ready to take on a new a new love, a new club? Um, because surely, especially when you've been at a club for so long, you'd need time to kind of bounce back. I, I mean, are Norwich just a rebound club for him? Well, it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? Because we just talked about there how Eddie Howe, like, what's his role going to be there? And the same here with Norwich and Dean Smith. Is this job for him... A poison chalice or is it a good opportunity it's always pretty tough to take on a club that is almost certainly going down and that's what's happened here what would have happened for any Norwich manager really you're employing someone who is they have a chance of staying up but someone who is accepting a very real chance that they're going to face relegation and that is firstly an indelible mark on your on your managerial CV but also it's just it's it's not a lot of fun you're not going to get a lot of good times out of the out of the next six months at Norwich. So it is interesting to see what Dean Smith hopes to get out of this this role. In terms of Norwich, I think this is an absolutely fantastic appointment. Um, Dean Smith has a really, really good history of this. He spent his career developing sides. His start as a coach came at Leighton Orient before becoming assistant manager for them um, in the 0405 season. And then after that, went to League One Walsall as their head of youth and eventually became manager. So he has a really good background in youth and developing youth players and taking teams in, in tough positions. His first summer after becoming Walsall manager, he let go of 14 players and subsequently lost just one of their first five league games, having spent the majority of last season in a relegation dogfight. When he joined, there were nine points adrift um, and they fought back under him to stay up. So not a dissimilar situation to, to Norwich now. Um, and, and again, let go of 14 players to, to overhaul that squad. After leaving Walsall in 2015, he went to Brentford, um, where he brought in 18 new players over the first half season and finished respectably top half in the championship in all three of his years. I think it was ninth, 10th and 9th um, and laid some of the foundations for the club's current state. And then, of course, moved on to Villa, which we're all a little bit more familiar with. But that is the CV of a man who is really good at coming into places that are on fire, putting out the fires and in some cases unexpectedly keeping teams up I think the fact that he's got a number of different overhauls under his belt as well obviously uh, Aston Villa when he took over them they were 14th place in the championship and again he oversaw massive massive squad overhauls they spent in the 2019 summer transfer window 150 million pounds to bring in 12 new players which included obviously players like Matt Target Tyron Mings Douglas Louise who are all integral today and then we, they had that following window last season where they got in at Martinez and Watkins and Matty Cash. So I think he is someone who's very, very versed in just taking huge parts of the squad and going, not good enough, 
but also the secondary part of that, identifying players either externally in the in the sort of European markets or from within the club's youth system and going, and this is what we need to fix that and fill that role, which I think is exactly what Norwich need. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I just think that, you know, no one's really expecting much of Norwich this season. So in that sense, he's kind of got free reign to semi-do what he wants. I mean, definitely the other part to mention is that, you know, Norwich while they've been having a rough time of it, they can't really get any worse. Um, and you know, mm. I would also say that they do have a couple of players with quite high potentials. You know, Obviously, the, the main ones being ex-players on loan like Ozan Kabak and Billy Gilmore, but also um, you know, Chris Ostolis as well, Max Ahrens, Todd Campwell. Um, there's a potentially quite exciting side in there somewhere if they can kind of try and re-engineer themselves as a vibrant dynamic young team rather than just a team that's resigned to be going down um you know he just gets in and says look i know how to do this i know how it works i'm experienced you guys have an amazing opportunity here to play premier league football and to continue playing premier league football so just try and impress do your best yeah exactly i think there are a couple of exciting players in that squad, but it's they're overwhelmed by the large amount of players that just aren't at the level. And I think where Dean Smith is good is he has that history of being able to go, right, all of these players need to get out and let's keep these four or five and build the squad around them. And I've identified this player from the youth squad and this player from, you know, wherever it is and bringing all those players over. Um, so I think, yeah, he is, you know, time and again, displays the ability to take underperforming clubs and give them radical overhauls. And I do think it's a little bit too late and too much rot to save Norwich this season. Although, as a side note, if Dean Smith manages to keep them from going down, I think he should be given manager of the year on the spot. But when Norwich inevitably do come back up the year after next, you'd imagine that Dean Smith would have been given time to do some of those overhauls. I would say that he is one of the best men around in football today to actually have been able to turn Norwich round by that point into a side that can stay up. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, I think that, I mean, as you say, it's probably going to be Quite hard for them. But then, you know, they're only five points off Watford at 17th place. So it's very much doable. Um, there are quite a lot of teams who are also doing really badly. Aston Villa, his whole club, um, lost five in a row on 10 points as well. So only five points off Norwich. Um, you know, Brentford <laughs> have Villa been, go down, but Norwich stay up. I mean, that would be a real slap in the face. That's surely his motivation. Um, and, you know, Newcastle haven't looked great, but they're looking to turn things around. Burnley have had a hard season so far. Um, you know, even Southampton have struggled at times. Brentford have struggled at times. Uh, it's not it's not unfeasible that Norwich could very well stay up. I think, and he's taken over at a time that uh, there's there's he's got enough time in the season left over to do it if he if he can. Yeah, and I. I... I mean, I think the main thing is just that the players aren't good enough. And despite, I think Dean Smith is good at sort of cutting out the rot and bringing new players. He, he's only going to have so much time to do that. And this he starts radically, you know, dropping players from the first team to replace them with youth players, which he may well do between now and January and probably after January, because it's not like new, uh, Norwich are going to spend hundreds of millions. But I think, yeah, he's going to need a little bit of time to get that squad to play the football he wants, because <laughs> firstly, as good as he is as developing sides... It may also be the case that Dean Smith, by the by the end of his uh, his time as Aston Villa manager, was overseeing quite a good squad. He may have got used to going down to training and being like, "All right, lads, string five passes together. Oh, you can do that. Brilliant. I'll go and uh, go and have that cup of coffee I was planning on." Whereas he's going to go down to Norwich and be like, "Right, lads, string one pass to. Oh no. Uh, okay, right. Let's work on this then." 
I mean, yeah, I guess so, maybe. Um, I love that impression of Dean Smith. It's like, a, right, guys, one passing drill, and then I'll go have a, a hot drink upstairs. In the, just because, you know, obviously he did lose his job. But uh, I, I think he can't lose here, really. It's quite a nice, relaxed job to be taking over, to be honest. Despite what it might look like on the face of it, which is that, you know, they, they don't have a lot going for them and, and they probably will go down. I think, as you say, if he keeps them up, It'll be incredible, but also points-wise, it's not unfeasible. And you know he's done this before; he can just roll out the same blueprint. And I think there's a chance it could work. I think, yeah. I, I again, it's not unfeasible. I would just be surprised because of the players. But if he if he manages to keep them up, hats off. Um, but yeah, I think I would assume based on I his mean, history. Maybe I'm overrating on... new Norwich players, but I I think they've got quality in that squad in that lineup. I mean, you know, Timu Puki, we know he can score goals in the Premier League if you can get him working. Even people yeah, like... Um... Can he, though? I mean, when, when's the last... Like, <laughs> no, the last Brandon time Williams a is a good was... player. Brandon Williams is a good player. Um, you know, Todd Camwell looked pretty exciting at one point. He's never quite fully hit his rhythm for a whole season in the Premier League. But if he can, and I think there's a chance he can. I don't know. I think um, I think this Norwich has more to, to show than it has already shown. Yeah, I, I hope so, just for their sake and also for, for my sake, because I'm sick of seeing them go down and come up. I'd love to just be surprised by Norwich. But um, I, I don't know. I, I don't. And again, we'll, we'll see if he can quickly start getting a tune out of someone like Timo Pukki is a really good example. If he can figure out how to get even a fraction of what he's like in the championship in the premiership, then yeah, they're, they're laughing um, and they will be able to sort of at least get above teams like your, your Watfords and, and your Newcastles or Newcastle in the short term anyway. Um, I mean, he managed um, Ollie Watkins' transition quite quite well. Yeah, well, very good point. So I think, yeah, it's a really interesting appointment. I really like that fit. And I think worst case scenario for Norwich, they will go down, but they'll be back. And next time they come back, they might not be as bad. <laughs> I feel like that's what we said last time. What, about them them coming back up? No, no. Last time they went down, I remember Daniel Farker, there was one thing he said in a post-match interview that just I remember sticking in my mind, and we talked about it on the here, and it was that he described his team, he, he said it was like we were playing, um, it was men against boys out there, and he was like, he multiple times evoked that uh, that metaphor, and, and was like, kept describing his team as boys, and everyone else as men, and I was like, these are not the words of a man who surely is going to stay there. And then he kept the job, and I was like, this is weird. <laughs> and, and then, then came bounced back, back immediately, which also was weird. Well, it's just it's the championship, isn't it? It's Norwich's bread and butter. But then they've come up, and immediately the same thing has happened. And I just think Dean Smith, if they go down, it's not really his fault at this point, because the season's, you know, there's been so much damage done. He might try and finish, you know, he might be able to climb the up to 18th or something, but it's just, it's a tough one. And is that true? I mean... It's you know only only eleven games played so far. Yeah, that's that's less than a third of the season. I still think that's a that's a lot of game. Eleven out of thirty eight is a lot of the games played, and they've not taken any of the points where they should have been able to take them. I mean, they've got the but odd point I mean, in a draw, but like, I hear you. But like, as as bad ostensibly as Norwich's season has been so far, you know, he's only seven points of fourteenth place. It's close at the bottom. There have been a lot of clubs that have not been doing so well. well yeah, seven, seven points off 14th place. Seven points off 14th place. But the problem with that, and this is the... I feel like this is what all football fans... Not that you're a Norwich fan, but this is what all football fans do when like their team is has like that points barrier. They're like, ah, oh, we're just three points off top four. Ah, oh, we're only 10 points behind Liverpool. We're nearly... Like, yeah, they're, they're seven points off 14th. But every other team is going to get points in the time that it takes Norwich to get seven more points. It's not like every, every other team is going to stay still at the table. True, but Norwich just need to have one slightly longer run of form than, than teams around them or, you know, uh, one more, 
you know, run of form than other teams around them. That's all it takes. Yeah, but I think that that already is like to to get up to in order to gain seven points on someone else is is so you have to be getting seven points whilst they also get zero. So you know you either have to be winning games while they're drawing, or like I just don't see Norwich consistently winning at a high enough rate to get out of the relegation zone. Maybe they'll get like 18. And I hope I hope I'm wrong. I, w- I want to be flying the Dean Smith flag here at the end of the season and going, haha, give them manager of the season. Um, I just don't see it. Well, hey, I mean, I think that uh, if uh, if Dean Smith does keep them up, and if David Moyes keeps West Ham in the top six, then you and me will be outside with our boxing gloves on to decide who who wins manager of the season. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, shall we go to a bit of useless trivia before we go into our next managerial appointment? Um, and I have got a managerial bit of useless trivia for you this week because of our theme over the last uh, 14 days of managers. And that is about Marco Silva, um, of course, manager of Watford, Everton and Hull. Did you know, Rupert, that Marco Silva holds the record for the most set pieces conceded over the course of a Premier League season? His Watford team conceded 12 goals from corners and free kicks. As if this wasn't bad enough, he also holds the second and third place records from his time at Everton and Hull with 11 apiece. Wow, that is a... Uh, <laughs> it's pretty damning. <laughs> um, I did not Marco know Marco Silva teams, it, like you begging for a corner against Marco Silva teams. Well, there you go. Um, you know, any managers listening... Um, that's how you do it. <laughs> Marco Silva just doesn't do set-piece drills. <laughs> so, um, my piece of useless trivia comes from the non-league football in England. Um, I don't know if you came across this story at all, but um, during a FA Trophy game between Marine and Dunstan UTS, um, yeah. <laughs> the floodlights went out at half-time, at which point qualified electrician Phil Turnbull, who was the 34-year-old midfielder for Dunson UTS, um, jogged off the pitch in full kit to fix the lights. <laughs> um, and then, uh, unfortunately, his team were unable to, to come away with a win as they lost on penalties 5-4. But what a heroic uh, representation of what a non-league really is all about. What non-league is all about, indeed, and the the picture that accompanies that story, like the is pints just on the table, because you've got a guy in full kit bent over an electrical box. Yeah, and there's and there's two pints on top of the open <laughs> electrical box. This is just like this could only be non-league. In my mind, what at least one of those pints is his. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been bought it. And he's gonna like take a swig. It's probably why he missed his penalty. I don't know if he took a penalty. I don't Maybe. think he I did. Hope so. <laughs> he also um so he tried to he tried to fix it, couldn't. He then um, called a friend <laughs> to get the job done, um, and eventually the, the game was resumed. So what you're saying is he failed to get the job done on two occasions that day? At least two. We don't know what happened for the rest of the day. Oh yeah, God, it could have got even worse. That it is, it is just a great, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it already, I encourage anyone listening to, to look up that on Twitter, because it's like one of those great football pictures that's uh, the, the, the the visuals on it as well, like the contrast of his all red kit, like red shirt and red shorts as he's kneeling <laughs> into this grey electrical box. It should be in the museum, honestly. Uh, the, the aesthetics of the picture are uh, um, also unmatched. Um, yeah, just a nice uh, heartwarming little tale from non-league English football, which which we all like to see, I think. Which we all do indeed. Um, 
back to the Premier League, though, let's look at our third managerial appointment of the week, and that is at Aston Villa, who have let Dean Smith go to save Norwich uh, in order to get a different manager and a, a new flavour of manager. They've gone for Steven Gerrard back in the Premier League. Yeah, it's exciting, actually. I mean, I think um, it's a big job for him. I, I don't want to disrespect Rangers at all, but obviously, you know, he's, he's only managed one club so far. Done it wildly successfully, but... Villa are in the Premier League. They've got a lot of ambitions as a club, you know, as evidenced by the fact that they fired Dean Smith because he wasn't doing the best job. And I'm slightly nervous that this is maybe Steven Gerrard biting off more than he can chew, but I'm going to enjoy the ride, that's for sure. It's funny, yeah, because like a lot of people, I think I mentioned last episode that his Rangers contract expired on the same day as Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool contract, and I think a lot of Liverpool fans had sort of already been eyeing him up as a as a one in replacement. So there wasn't maybe it was just because it hadn't actually happened, so people weren't really thinking about it. But there was enough talk about Steven Gerrard going into the Liverpool job that it felt like it might happen at some point. Whereas now he's gone into Villa, which is. A very, very difficult job and a very, very big job. But you would have to say at the moment, not as big a job as the Liverpool job. And now people are going, oh, is this too big for him? Which I, which myself included, which I think is it's quite a funny one. Because we were sort of all mentally entertaining the idea of him being Liverpool manager. Um, but now Villa, we're, we're like, whoa. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I guess it was always like deep in the future, you know, in three, four years time. Um, and I guess, you know, there's definitely examples of that I guess you have Sir Alex Ferguson for example um, had a couple of jobs in the Scottish League then managed the Scottish national team for a year and then took over at Manchester United and obviously did quite well Um, so I guess there's a little bit of precedent but the stakes are definitely higher now than they were in 1986 um, in the Premier League and just kind of competitively in, in football and I don't know I I, I do worry for for him that Aston Villa are going to be more ambitious than, than he is going to be able to deliver. But, you know, who's to say? I also back, you know, his career so far. I think he did a really good job at Rangers, as we talked about. And he's managed it really well. And I think he picked the right job to start his managerial trajectory with. So I guess in, in, in that sense, maybe this is him being savvy again recognising that he might well need another stepping stone if he's going to take the Liverpool job on at some point in the future. Maybe, you know, people at Liverpool are also saying we want to keep Jurgen Klopp for a little bit longer. Um, it could be any number of things. We, I don't know what his new, uh, the new end of his contract is. Is it still the end of uh, Jurgen Klopp's tenure? You'd imagine not, because I mean, they'd have given him like a year and a half contract, which is not, not the biggest <laughs> show of faith. That's true. Um but yeah, no, lo- lots to unpack there and lots that's interesting. And I think maybe a good place to start is you invoked Sir Alex Ferguson there, which is perhaps the the biggest uh, comparison and definitely a big outlier. But much as when we discussed the transfer of Odson Edouard to Crystal Palace in the context of other signings from the Scottish Premier League, the first place the mind jumps to when looking at Steven Gerrard coming from Rangers to Villa is thinking about those Scottish Premier League credentials and how other moves have worked out. Um, outside of the very obvious example of Alex Ferguson going from Aberdeen to Manchester United, you can also look at a very current example of Brendan Rodgers, who came from Celtic to Leicester, and I think it's fair to say has done a great job so far. That's true. I mean, ironically, he had already had the Liverpool job. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. I think the key difference there is that Rodgers had already had significant Premier League experience from before he went to Celtic, 
obviously at Liverpool, but also Swansea City. So he'd managed a a big club that was sort of trying to trying to win it all, but also Swansea City, who he took up to the Premier League and sort of they were trying to sort of stave off the drop. Gerard, meanwhile, has no senior managerial experience outside of Scotland, and his only experience in any sort of role before the Rangers job was coming through a role in Liverpool's youth setup. There are other, you know, a couple of examples on the other end of managers that have done really, really well in Scotland, only to come and do really poorly in, in the Premier League. Neil Lennon and Gordon Strachan both oversaw abysmal periods in the Premier League over Bolton Wanderers and Middlesbrough, respectively, and they both joined from really, really good Celtic outfits. Um, so there's a little bit of both, much as with signings. I don't think that there is grounds to go, well, the Scottish League is way below, so you won't be able to hack it. But I also think there are examples to go, well, it's not exactly an easy transition because I would also say that sort of, to be fair to Stephen Gerrard's credit, it's a little bit different managing this Rangers than it was to manage a Celtic team of one of their periods of of supremacy because he did have to sort of fight back against a Celtic team that had won nine titles on a row and did that successfully and also won the league unbeaten. But there is still sort of like a... And had a good little run in the Europa League as well. And really did, yeah. So, So I think there could be a lot to like about him as appointment. I think one of the things that you would have to really think about one of the concerns I think is a, is, is a prime consideration I would say for Villa and it's something that everyone's been talking about with Steven Gerrard obviously we open this conversation Steven Gerrard Liverpool I mean the two are synonymous you talk Steven Gerrard you talk Liverpool and a lot of people have kind of taken it as read that someday as he is now a manager he will end up managing Liverpool and a lot of people are looking at this job as the stepping stone job and again Jurgen Klopp's got a year and a half left on his contract now this is pretty interesting for any club that hires a manager but specifically for Villa who around Dean Smith sacking there was a lot of assertion that they had certain goals to hit and several long-term objectives and it was Christian Perza who came out and said you know the things we've been trying to do this year and it's very much a project in the making that's been building over several years and ad players and this one ad players now so they've got a long-term project in mind you'd have to wonder if Gerard who will always have at least one eye on a job and <laughs> up in Liverpool will be the best candidate to to carry out that project i mean i think this is an important point because to my mind at least this does not seem like a long-term thought through plan you know just on the face of it you have big ambitions as a club and you're replacing a very you know well-established and respected manager with a young inexperienced one i don't want to say bad because he's not bad but he's untested in the premier league at least so I'm confused in that sense. If I was Aston Villa, I don't think that I would have fired Dean Smith unless I knew exactly who I was going to bring in instead, unless I'd already had contact with them and they'd said yes, and I was confident that they were going to be the right long-term manager for me. And, you know, we could both be proved wrong. Stephen Gerrard could, could grow to really love um, the West Midlands and not want to leave anytime soon. Um, to take the Liverpool job, even if he does think that maybe he'll do it one day. But I just don't see how this is going to line up. I mean, on the face of it, I'm excited to see what Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa looks like. But the second like, slightly nagging thought in the back of my mind is definitely, is this going to work out for either of them? Well, what's interesting about, because you were saying there, like it doesn't seem considered, and I, I agree on the face of it, it doesn't really seem that considered. But I think there's a little bit of evidence to the contrary when you dig a little bit deeper. For starters, it's not like Steven Gerrard was a manager who was just floating around and was available and they thought, well, he's a manager who's free, we're a club who needs a manager. He was still under contract with Rangers and they got him from... So it wasn't like they were just going for someone who was available. True. And secondly, and this is a really 
interesting thing to sort of go into in terms of Steven Gerrard's job at Aston Villa and something I think is going to really inform how successful he is. Christian Perslow, who is Aston Villa's chief executive, was formerly Liverpool's managing director. So he has a pre-existing relationship with Steven Gerrard. He's spoken about how he's worked very well with Steven Gerrard in the past, about how Steven Gerrard's a very, I mean, obviously he was Liverpool's captain for so long and he's a real sort of motivational guy. I think there was even an article I read somewhere of Christian Perslow meeting with Steven Gerrard when they were sort of doing a tour of, of America or of like LA or something, some training camp. And saying, like, you can tell from the way that he speaks to the rest of the players that not only is he a fantastic captain, but someday he'll be a top manager. Um, so I think that relationship has definitely led Aston Villa to looking at Gerard as, as, a, as a prime candidate, even though it might not seem like he is a particularly good long-term one because of that Liverpool affiliation. I do also think that that relationship is going to be key in how Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa unfolds. Um, executive support, obviously is really important if you if you have people on side um and especially for a younger newer manager who is always sort of playing with credit you don't really have having that system behind you should allow you to take real confidence into his tenure there um and i think again it's super important for any manager it's super important for a young manager who doesn't have credit to play with it's super important for a villa manager at the moment because this villa side have just lost five games on the spin so they're not in the best form and in their next five games, they have to play against Manchester City, Liverpool and Leicester. So it could be a pretty bad start for, for Steven Gerrard. Um, so it's good that he at least has that sort of executive backing and people who sort of believe in him as a, as a concept and believe in what he represents um, in, in the boardroom. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and definitely, as you say, those next five games, it's going to need a lot of motivation to to get this Aston Villa side firing again in time to, you know, p- pull off some some results and get some points. Um, I guess just I think Bright- Brighton and Palace are the other two in the next five. I think it's Brighton Palace first, and then Liverpool, Leicester, Manchester City. It's all, not all it's not unfeasible. It's not unfeasible, but the Villa games. could lose all five games. Um, oh, no, so yeah. I'm saying it's not unfeasible. They lose all five of those. That's very true. So, and- so I, I, you know, they might not, but tough tough opponents. All obviously three of those are bigger teams, but Brighton have been really tough to beat this season, and Crystal Palace have been on occasion playing unreal football under Vieira. Well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've beaten both Spurs and City this season so far um, and look like exactly. they can beat anyone. I, yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be really hard going. Um, I guess just regardless of whether or not, you know, I agree with you that that relationship with the executive is going to be important. Um, I agree that they probably have put a lot of thought into this, but I, I just think that it's it's a brave move. Um, for someone willing to take the gamble of getting rid of Dean Smith, I, I don't feel like this is solid ground to be leaping onto, if that makes sense. No, it's definitely not. And I think it's probably been informed by Christian Perso going, I believe in him, he's a, he's a good lad. But it, yeah, it's not being solid ground is a really good way to put it, because they have taken a leap from Dean Smith, who, who very much was that and proved time and again, not only at Villa and elsewhere, that he, this, this episode has become a bit of a Dean Smith loving. I, I don't really have any problem with that, but um, proved time and again that he, he was solid ground to Stephen Gerrard, which is a, a very speculative appointment. But I think it'll be really interesting to look at how Stephen Gerrard's side plays. And there's a lot we can look at in terms of how his Rangers side played and what the formation was and what the, the key sort of ways they use, especially in European games, which is a really interesting way to sort of compare, you know, how different teams have played against the same opponent. But I think one of the things I was most impressed by was that during his unveiling, he was asked questions along the lines of, you know, what's your management philosophy and how do you like to approach games? What would you say is your style of play? And he answered sort of 
roughly, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he sort of said, you know, I, I don't have a management philosophy. I wouldn't say I have a defined style of play because firstly, I've not been a manager for that long. And secondly, I don't think that it's the correct way to approach being a manager by just having a defined style of play you need to be adaptable and i think that's such a good answer a just you know <laughs> in terms of answering a question but also just in terms of a view to bring to premier league management because no two opponents are the same you could be playing the same team back to back and they'll come out in different ways and and just being adaptable especially for a team like villa is such a good way to approach that role so I'm really looking forward to seeing how his team plays. I think it might be a really tough start for Villa because they have got five tough games um, and obviously are not in the best form and have been struggling with injuries all season. But I think it'll be interesting to see. It might only be a small peak before, you know, because as soon as the team starts doing well, he'll be off to Liverpool. <laughs> but um, I'm interested to see how, how this works out because, yeah, it, th- th- there's, a, there's a lot to get excited about. One thing I wanted to ask you about was... Um, John Hartson's comments. Did you see these? Um, I don't think I did, no. So John Hartson, of course, uh, big Celtic player, um, was uh, came out in, in defence of, of Rangers, actually. And it's much the same sort of thing that we saw when Brendan Rodgers left Celtic uh, to join as Leicester manager. And I think it's just like a lot of Scottish Premier League fans feel a little bit slighted when managers leave the sort of most elite clubs in Scotland to join clubs in, in England that are not doing particularly well or like in the middle of the contract so obviously Steven Gerrard's left Rangers in the middle of his contract to join a club that's 16th in the Premier League and so John Hartson's comment was he was talking about how like some people have been saying oh it's a real step up for Gerrard to go here managing the Premier League and John Hartson was like no that's rubbish it's not a step up it's a step down in terms of club size Rangers could fit Aston Villa in their back pocket your thoughts (laughs) um well, I think I think he might have gotten away with that had it been a different, you know, bottom league side in the Premier League. But uh, Aston Villa are quite a large historical club. I don't think that's uh, quite doing them justice, if anything. Um, European Cup. They do have a European Cup. I I get what he's saying, and it's a fair point generally that, like, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a slight on Scottish league sides that. You know, it's considered a step up, or everyone's kind of gushing about how how much of a good opportunity it is when he he was ostensibly building something quite exciting at Rangers. I get that, but I feel like he's picked the wrong target with uh, Aston Villa there. Yeah, it, it did seem a bit like it sort of seemed like someone who just felt a bit scorned, and it was especially funny because yeah, like a Celtic player coming to the defence of of the size of Rangers, it, it was clearly sort of a a national wound that Stephen Jarrett has sort of won the league with Rangers and then gone right. Well, I'm done here. On to the next big project. Um, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's always going to hurt, isn't it, when a, a manager leaves halfway through a season um, as soon as another opportunity comes across. Um, that's definitely gonna gonna be tough to handle, but hopefully he's got a range to the point where they will not slip back down the table as soon as he leaves. Um, again, I mean, even that would be interesting to see if he was kind of the sum of all parts of Rangers' success, or has he actually just been able to recruit effectively and build up a, a you know a really good side? But uh, I guess the question I have for you is it's interesting because um, obviously. Aston Villa have been bringing in a bunch of different foreign talented players recently. And Steven Gerrard, you know, while while I like a Scouse accent, um, he's not always the easiest person to, to understand. Um, do you think someone like Emiliano Buendia knows what's coming to him when he first gets into the dressing room? 
Yes, and I'll only say that because as much as I think that is a consideration, you do have, and again, just to bring the parallel here of the Scottish Premier League manager, Alex Ferguson had a very thick Scottish accent and he did all right. That's true. That's true. Uh, He did seem to do okay, didn't he? He did all right. I don't know. I <laughs> although, although I, I suppose you could say in an age when there were much, it was, it was much more common to have teams that were like very predominantly English, Irish, and Scottish. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Aston Villa as a team is is quite English speaking pronounced. Um, I mean, you know, even players like Leon Bailey is he's Jamaican, so um, yeah, he'll, he'll be fine. Um, but uh, and, and there are a lot of English players there. But yeah, I just wondered uh, <laughs> if one or two of them might have. I think uh, Buendia might, but Buendia's been knocking around Norwich for the better part of four or five years. I, I, I think he's grown grown accustomed to regional accents. You think he'll be all right? Is there a regional accent yeah. in Norwich? A little one, a little bit of one. <laughs> a little bit one, yeah. Um, no, I, th- I think it's exciting. Looking at some of the, the sort of expecting, a lot of people have talked about Stephen Gerrard's use of fullbacks um, and how we can expect that to inform players like Matty Cash and Matt Target, who already are uh, a very exciting pair of fullbacks and amongst two of the exciting, most exciting fullbacks in the league. Also, the way that he used Ryan Jack and how he used midfielders to sort of shuttle the ball and how John McGinn is going to adapt to that. And a lot of people have identified John McGinn as a player that's going to play very well with him. For the most part, Stephen Gerrard's Rangers played in a 4-3-2-1, um, really defensively sound, played the ball across the back four really well to build things from the back. And that could be really easily adapted to Villa's squad. This season, they've rolled out every now and again with a 3-5-2, but... At least to my understanding, that was mostly a formation for when certain key players were out. Some combination of Ings, Watkins, Bailey and Bardia. Under Dean Smith, for the most part, they had either a 4-3-3 or a 4-3, uh, a 4-2-3-1. Um, and that fits quite similarly with how Steven Gerrard wants to play the lone striker, the back four, the three-man midfield. So I can see how he could sl- like slot in quite well with the players they have and play in a similar style. True. Yeah, I think um, as well, even just maybe someone like Douglas Louise, I think, could potentially benefit from from Steven Gerrard just because they have a somewhat similar role of central midfielder who wants to do the hard yards in defence, but also likes to arrive and and hit them every now and then. Um, It might be quite literal, but I always do just, you know, look at which players directly correlate to the manager themselves. You know, someone like Conor Gallagher with Patrick Vieira managing him, someone like Mason Mount with Frank Lampard managing him. Um, yeah, there are often times where players can really benefit from having a similar style of manager of when he was when he was a player himself. Someone to look up to, yeah, and then sort of learn learn the trade, like uh, like Mason Greenwood and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. <laughs> Just it, almost exactly like that. Well, maybe even like like Ronaldo <laughs> and Solskjaer. Well, yeah, exactly. Ronaldo could definitely learn a lot from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. That's for sure. <laughs> Shall we wrap up with our final two bits? Because um, we've got not two full segments, but just two little things here. Um, maybe starting with the uh, one I've got below on the document here, because this is definitely the shorter of the two. That is that West Ham have sold 27% of the club to Czech billionaire Daniel Kretinsky, um, who is also president of Sparta Prague, which is not to be confu- Sparta Prague rather, not to be confused with Slavia Prague, which is where West Ham bought um, Thomas Suchek and uh, Vladimir Sufal from, um, but the other club in Prague. And it makes him the second largest shareholder of West Ham after David Sullivan. Uh, He has 2% more of a stake in the club than David Gold, who owns a quarter of the club. Um, One that it will be interesting to see, because we don't necessarily know what it means yet. It means more money to the club. It means that it'll be less like the Declan Rice will have to be sold in January or in the next window with more money behind them. Um, 
But it's interesting this one because at the moment, obviously still a minority stake, one that could be the start of something. A lot of big ownerships start off with a small sort of percentage and then that percentage grows and grows and grows before the full takeover. And in the case of West Ham, it's particularly interesting because there are certain deals in place uh, as regards West Ham's ownership of the London Stadium that mean that after 2023, it will be more easy for someone to come in and buy West Ham. Because at the moment, if they sell, they have to pay a certain amount back to the City of London, etc, etc. So there's a whole thing behind that. So the fact that this Daniel Kratinsky has come in now and bought 27% could mean that inside the next two, three, four, five years, we see him take over the entire club um so one to watch there just an interesting one to flag there anything to add rupert there or have i have i covered that aptly no i I guess um the only other thing to add is just um it's always nice to see when a couple of players from one nation join a club and then that club starts to become more popular in that country um you know i'm sure we've got a lot of there'll be a lot of czech um, people who are now supporting West Ham because of the successes of Suchek and, and Soufal. And I guess the other point that it then naturally leads to is who else, um, you know, across um, the Czech national players could West Ham potentially bring in at some point? I mean, beyond beyond the obvious, which is um, Patrick Schick, probably. Um, you know, Czech, are, Czech Republic do Ooh, have quite a few... such a good fit. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, that was such a good fit. <laughs> um, I mean, I was it's... just thinking about that signing in January. God, that'd be great. I mean, I think January's probably a little too too early for that. They've just invested in the club. But, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether or not this develops into something a little more. Obviously, the most notable example in recent memory is someone like Wolves and the Portuguese contingent that has been present there um, for the last few years and how that's kind of helped buoy the club and, and how it's also massively grown the profile of Wolves in Europe because, you know, they, ha- they now have a fan base in Portugal who support them. Yeah, and they've been able to sort of get the party through the relationship with Jorge Mendes, but they've been able to get the drop on loads of exciting young Portuguese talent that you would normally have seen going to a Manchester United or a Chelsea to develop and, and then maybe be sold onto Wolves if they didn't work out or something like that. But they've been, been able to jump in on these players very early doors. Um, so yeah, could be the same for West Ham and Czech players. And I'm just, I'm, I'm still sort of like, mentally stroking one out of the idea of Patrick <laughs> Schick playing there. That's such a perfect like role filler for them. Imagine. Um, um, yeah, he, he would he would do uh, a lot of good things at West Ham, I'm sure. I think, um, I mean, Czech Republic, they do have a little bit of an ageing squad, but, you know, that's what when the new generation comes through, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Wrapping us up last is a little bit of international flavour. England beat Albania 5-0 on Friday um, and are now one point away from qualification to the World Cup with Brazil, France, Germany, Denmark, Belgium, Croatia and of course the host nation Qatar already in. Um, but an interesting game because we, before this game, had the, sort of the studios and obviously everyone on Twitter looking at the lineup and absolutely lambasting two players in particular for uh, their inclusion um, due to an absolute lack of form in their club uh, seasons so far, those being the brothers Harry, Kane and Maguire. Yeah, and it, it is really crazy, isn't it, how this game showed that Harry Maguire is undoubtedly a world-class player. Maybe, maybe you know, top 10 in the world. Um, so it was nice to have that you mean, reinforced. You mean Kane by... or Maguire? No, Harry Maguire. It's nice, nice that he got his goal. Just <laughs> to remind everyone of how incredible he is. Um, I think his celebration really hammered that home for us. Yeah, it was maybe a little on the nose, but he did what he had to do. 
I think it's just so funny to like score a goal against Albania and then like knee slide and be like, I've silenced my haters. And it's like, no, you haven't. You've not even, you've not even started to remedy the woes of the United fans or indeed the United team. Oh, God. Poor guy. Poor guy. He really can't do anything right, can he? It's almost worse when it's like that, when you, when you have someone who's like really bad for you and then pulls on the England shirt and suddenly as well because you're like, so you can perform every now and again, but you, you're not doing it for the club then. Oh, great, great. Oh, so you're a layabout there. You don't want to play for the shirt. But this is the whole... It doesn't send the message I think Harry Maguire thought it did. But it's, it's weirdly so perfect because Harry Maguire's profile as a player is that he doesn't play very well a lot of the time and then sometimes he pulls out blockbuster performances. And if there's anything he can do quite well, it's score important goals or score goals in big moments or step up in big moments. And credit to him for that, because that is a really important trait to have. But, you know, for him to then, rather than putting in a sort of defensive masterclass to score a goal, which he has done a couple of times this season already, um, and then celebrate like that was just, yeah. I felt very fitting of how he views himself and how, I don't know, his presence as a defender is felt. It's literally just most of the time on the other end of the pitch. And also as well, like the goal, because you said he's scored a fair few important goals, which he, which he absolutely has. But the goal that he scored there was like an early goal, yeah, a header, I guess. It wasn't like a last minute 2-1 win. <laughs> it was like ninth minute. And he was like, yeah, everyone sit down. Shh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, he really did villainize himself. It's a, sh- it's a poor guy because, you know, if he scored and had a good game and not done anything overtly dumb then people people will be saying, you know, okay, it's a good performance. Maybe he can translate that into uh, the club level. But now everyone's just having a go at him. Um, he he can't do it right, can he? Such a misreading of the of the, of the whole temperature of the room. Um, but but yeah, looking at the other Harry, um, who did have a, an even better game, fantastic game, scored a hat trick uh, and was some something of a match winner. Uh, where Maguire was, I suppose, just the cherry on top. Um, scoring a hat trick. Um, absolutely supreme really confident in the way he took the goals as well especially the second one where he took it from like a really tight angle he was in the box the whole game he was just going away causing a nightmare for the defenders playing like we know Kerry Kane can at his best and playing like a striker is he back or is this just that what happens when he plays against a team like Albania oh it's such a good question and it's so hard to to tell from just that I think at least part of it is just Albania um, I mean, to get a chance like that off a corner is quite quite bad defending. Um, another one of his was just a, a header from quite close. Um, but as you say, he did score one good goal and he was threatening throughout. Um, yeah, I, I think that I would probably lean on the side of not the strongest opposition that he has faced or will face um, that made him look good. But, you know, it's encouraging. Well, it's funny because the other game that we've had from Harry Kane this season where everyone was sort of going, ah, you all thought he was off this season, but Harry Kane is back, was against Newcastle when he got a golden assist. His only golden assist of the season so far, I might add. And he looked really, really good against a side in crisis. So, you know, that that was like, I think, a month and a half ago, and he's been pretty bad ever since. So so I'm kind of in the, the school of thought where I'm like, maybe not yet, let's give it a bit of time. I think it is interesting to note that it could maybe be early impact from Antonio Conte obviously many people have seen the uh, the news that Antonio Conte has already banned all sources from Hotspur Way uh, much as he did at um, Cobham <laughs> when he was Chelsea manager no tomato ketchup no mayonnaise and also no pizza which is uh, you know a, a project that he's sort of he's banned 
pizza and fizzy drinks, which also, I think it's slightly weird that it isn't more commonplace for managers. I know as an athlete you burn off calories, but it just seems like in the modern game when nutrition is so important, you would think that was just a staple for managers. But Conte's done that and Harry Kane scored a hat-trick a week later. Coincidence? Perhaps. But also perhaps not. I mean, it could also be, you know, what we've uh, long lamented, which is uh, why doesn't a manager just sit down with Harry Kane and a clipboard and show him exactly where you want him to be on the pitch? Maybe Antonio Conte's actually done that. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember um, it's funny, isn't it? How like diets and things like that always always have this kind of almost mythic um, quality to them. I remember um, when Ryan Giggs took over the Manchester United role, like the main thing that everyone talked about was like the first move he did when he came in was to um, to bring chips back into the, the canteen. And everyone was saying like, oh, he's, you know, he's got the fact that the players on side already. Um, it's a really good sign. Like they're all, they're all playing for him. They want to play for him and stuff. And obviously it's, I guess it's as much a, a mentality thing as any other, but it is funny to see how sometimes it goes either way. Um, it could be, you know, that you need to restore a little bit of life into what was, you know, maybe quite a, a cruel regime that was before. And and sometimes it's, you know, you need a little bit more of a firm hand um, and someone to come in and bring discipline with them. I think that's a really good point. I think it definitely is all about striking that balance because ultimately you don't want to create sort of like a gulag atmosphere where everyone's just miserable the whole time and therefore they're not playing very well because they're like, oh God, kale salad again and, and stewed plums and et cetera, et cetera. But also I think you don't want to go for the eat pizza and brownies and soda for every single meal and then let's be surprised when we get outdone by a team that's observing proper nutrition. My two cents, I would probably say, and I've got a little evidence to back this up, I think it's probably a little bit of a mixture of both. The example I would give is uh, Claudio Ranieri in the season that Leicester won the league. You may recall um, when they uh, had a, a pretty successful result, he said that he was going to treat all of his team to pizza. So clearly, pizza was a possibility, but it was very much a reward, not commonplace. Yeah, exactly. You need balance, don't you? And you need a manager that gets it um, and that understands the players and the fact that, well, you know... They're all professional athletes. They're also people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was thinking that as well. Like, balance is just key for, for all managerial roles and probably everything in the world. Um, just when you were talking about Steven Gerrard and his comments about how it's good to have, you know, not too much of a defined style. I, I semi-agree with that. Obviously, you know, tactical flexibility is praised, but also you need to be robust enough and strong enough in your your image as a club and your your general baseline style that you're able to kind of riff off the top rather than to try and change things around every two weeks when you have different opposition. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. You've got to also have like a style that is coherent enough to communicate to a team of players, potentially also in different languages. You can't just like have a new, you know, t- uh, new sort of game plan every single week with different things and go, ah, so you now are an inverted left goalkeeper. You've got to have some sort of you know, coherent thing that's easily communicatable. Um, but I think, Rupert, we are coming pretty close to time, and I think that's probably a good place to end it. Um, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.